0: This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it is completely Free, So join today at www.bonsai.film. It takes just a few seconds. And once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter on Friday morning. It's that simple. Go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights, our biweekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives just like yourself. And don't worry, we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails. Just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need. And if you ever tire of Indie Insights, simply unsubscribe. No gimmicks, no games. So go to www.banzai.film to get Indie Insights for free.
1: Hi, I'm Haley Watson. I'm a director, producer, cinematographer. Um, you probably know me from my story reporting on The Queen of Basketball, my cinematography on The Beauty President, um, and right now um, I've just released a film called The Getaway. Um, it's a narrative short. It's not playing on Flick Flare at the moment and have a couple other things in the pocket at the moment.
0: Haley Watson, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you. Absolutely. I am so proud and happy to have you on. And thank you so much for waking up this morning and spending a little time with me. If you don't mind, I'd love to just jump right in because I have so much to ask you and talk about. I'd love to jump right in and talk about how you knew or know Lucia Harris.
1: Lucy. Yeah.
0: Yep. Yep. She goes by Lucy.
1: Yeah. Um, sure. What do you what do you want to know?
0: <laughs> How did you discover her? I guess it'd be the first thing.
1: Um, yeah, well the um uh, at the time that I found Lucy's story, I was working for a company called Breakwater Studios. Um they make short documentaries. Um and they have a really great series on the New York Times called Most Famous. And um uh, at the time, I can't remember when this was, but this was sometime in 2020 during the pandemic. Um, and my job at Breakwater was actually to run and manage their camera department. Um, I have a long history as a technician, and I came in during the pandemic and kind of um, revitalized uh, the equipment that they had into a small camera house. And But while I was there... Um, uh the question went out to find an additional um story for this almost famous series. Um and so I guess I took it upon myself to do some research. I felt like um I could probably find a, a story that fit into that anthology series. Um so, I mean, very plainly, I got on my computer one night and I spent about two hours researching. And I, in particular, um, I'm really passionate about women's stories. I'm really passionate about um, sports stories. Um, and um, at the time, I had been following uh, Maya Moore mm. and her story about um, uh, her, her work with his, his name escapes me right now, but essentially, um, uh, a man that had had a wrong conviction and she had left the WNBA for a short period to, um, try to get his freedom, which she accomplished, um, later. Um, so I kind of been in that headspace and I just, the question occurred to me, had any, had a woman ever been drafted to the NBA and, I put that in a Google search bar, and Lucy's story came up. <laughs>
0: so, oh god, that's amazing! Mm-hmm. And because and I think that for those who know, they're they're laughing as well. But for those who don't know, that triage of decisions led to an Oscar win.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the <laughs> the. Yes. I mean, a pretty, pretty good outcome from being curious. Um, the, but yeah, I, I pitched the story. They, um, Breakwater picked it up very quickly and, um, and then Ben Proudfoot, the director went out and directed, um, the piece, which obviously did very well. Um, uh, so yeah, a a great outcome to being curious and, um, uh, really needed for her story. I mean, like, uh, you know, uh, when I found her story, I was actually pretty mad because um, it, it had been like, I don't know. I just like, I was kind of like, why, you know, the question occurred to me of like, why hasn't this woman been celebrated in a way that people know her name? I mean, like, no, no other woman has ever been drafted by the NBA. So like, I don't know. That's just astonishing to me. So I, I was pretty like mad, and I was like, "Why isn't this a movie?" So, yeah, um, pretty good outcome.
0: I think we're gonna find, and the audience will find throughout our conversation, that your sense of discovery and adventure, and 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 passion for discovery and, and taking on challenges is a through line in your personality, in your temperament. And so it doesn't surprise me that you were mad. It doesn't surprise me that you were curious and you kind of found this story. I was surprised that the story existed. The, the best female basketball player I'd ever heard of, and I'm a big basketball fan and I've played my entire life, was Cheryl Miller. So mm-hmm. Cheryl Miller was the one. It was like, oh, she was the best. And she's the one that we should be remembering as sort of the OG of women's basketball. And to be surprised that there was someone else, uh, there was a moment, Haley, actually, where it was like, I wasn't mad, but I was like a little bit um, ashamed is probably too strong of a word, but somewhere in that realm of how could you not know this person existed? Um, And so to catch everybody up, can you just briefly explain who now her official name is Lucia Harris, but... She went by Lucy. Mm -hmm. Can you just explain briefly who Lucy Harris is and what she accomplished?
1: Yeah. Um, so Lucy Harris, I, I think I've said this before. Lucy Harris was the first, um, and to my knowledge, the only woman ever to be drafted by the NBA. Um, she did not play. She was drafted by the, um, New Orleans jazz and, um, Uh, she said no. She turned on the offer. Um, She felt like it was a publicity stunt, Um, but she was also a three-time college basketball national champion. Um, uh, She is the first woman to score a basket in the U.S. Olympics in the first year that women's basketball was uh, a sport in the Olympics. Um, And she was also a coach, a coach, and she also has, I, I haven't met, I'd never, I got a chance to meet Lucy and I, um, I haven't got a chance to meet her family, but I know, um, she, I think she has four children and they're all, uh, seem like really incredible people. Um, um, so yeah, she incredible basketball player, incredible coach, um, seemed like a really incredible parent. Uh, yeah, but just like amazing accomplishments that, um, I felt like really needed a voice.
0: Yeah. And the implication could be that the NBA drafted her and she couldn't make it and she washed out. But the reality is, is she said no to the NBA to raise those four amazing kids. And it's really rare. You know, I'm a big fan of Ben Ben Proudfoot. And he has this knack for creating short films that make you almost cry or cry. And it could be based on that cinematography, uh, cinematography style that, that he deploys of this sort of super close up. And I didn't know, what, what do you think about the use of the super close up in queen of basketball? Did, did it positively? I mean, it, it won. So it's there, but is that something, um, a choice you would have made? How would you have approached it if you would have DP this?
1: Um, well, I do want to go back on something real quick. Um, Lucy did say no to the New Orleans jazz, but it wasn't because she was, she felt obligated to raise a family. I think she felt like she was being made fun of or, or possibly like it. She, I think she felt it was a publicity stunt. It wasn't anything to do with family at the time that I know of. Um, and, um, I think that's important because I think it really, it, it says something more about the subtext of society at the time that someone felt like being asked this was like not because of the merit of how they played when she clearly was an outstanding player. Um, So I don't, I, um, I think she felt a lot of pressure as a woman of color for like what she was doing. And I think like, it's more of a subtext of society and like how society treated women and black women. Um, I I think she like, like I wish she would have played like, I think oh, that too. would have been, yeah. But, um, you but know, but she, she seems
0: played. content with it, I guess is the thing, right? Like, yes. like, at least the movie portrays her as being incredibly content with her decision not to pursue it. And, and there there's the family element to it. But so, but, but, adding that wrinkle you just told me is really great because I did not fully realize that at all. Mm -hmm. I could imply it, but I didn't realize that. So that's a huge point that you're making this idea Mm -hmm. that she didn't want to be the circus. So um, going back to sort of the question of style um, from, from your stylistic viewpoint, how would you have, have shot, sort of or, or like what do you think is like the most effective style for shooting those one-on-one type interviews
1: um i i don't know what i would have done um i guess i've never thought about it but i do know um back to what you're saying about um uh uh ben and his use of close up and and his use of direct eye contact i think is really effective uh, I know that the cinematographer Brandon Sommerholder. Um, yeah, I think I think they made a great team and they did a really great job. And I do think like that uh, like direct on eye contact, intimacy, uh, feeling that you get like she's essentially sitting across uh, and talking to you is really effective. Um, so yeah, I think it's a great use of like a close up and uh, a way to do an interview because I feel like you're like in the room with someone having a conversation. Um, uh, and I think that's just an effective way to, to shoot an interview. There's obviously there's many ways to shoot an interview, but I think it, it definitely creates a feeling of intimacy.
0: Yeah, I really agree with that. And the thing about it is once you see something work so effectively, it is kind of hard to imagine how you would do it differently. I know you said Mm -hmm. there's a million ways to shoot an interview, but Mm -hmm. once you see it done effectively, it's like, why would I shoot it any other way? But this way, like, I can't imagine how this movie would have been uh, queen of basketball that is would have been shot, except for how it was shot. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's so intimate that you do get uncomfortable at times there, which I think Mm -hmm. is the point. And you do get the sense that there is nowhere for the interviewee to hide.
1: Totally. hmm
0: Yeah. They don't need to hide from their thoughts, their inner monologue, because there are a lot of things that Lucy says, Haley, in that movie where I say, I don't believe you. I think mm. you would have wanted to do this, this, or this. And I think you're humble and you're a very sweet woman and you are making it right for today. But there are a couple of regrets in there that burn and you can see it in her eyes. It's mm. so close. She can't. She can't escape it. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. there's there's a little sadness in it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, uh, I think having that close close shot, you get to read all those things. Like when you're when you're having a close conversation with a friend or a family member or something, you see it all. Um, yeah, I think a, a close up interview is a very effective way of of communicating uh, subtext in an interview.
0: Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like writing without having to write a word on a, mm-hmm. uh, at all, you know, sort of in a screenplay or a teleplay. Um, mm-hmm. you were at Breakwater Studios for a while and you've been around Ben Proudfoot. Um, how have you been shaped or influenced by, by both of those places? And, um, where do you think that experience will take you going forward?
1: Well, yeah, I guess um, prior to being at Breakwater, I was um, I was a freelancer for ten years. I worked um, uh, mostly in narrative and commercial production in the camera department. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the pandemic hit um, uh, in March of 2020, and I was actually hired at Breakwater in March of 2020. Right. Um, everybody's first day home was my first day at work, Um, (laughs) uh, which was a little bit different Um, uh, being uh, especially as the, this was my first um, job as an employee that I had in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was really different for me. And it was definitely an adjustment for me just uh, from working kind of like my own, you know, you're just doing your own thing as a contractor and then being a part of a much larger team as an employee. Um, uh, and I guess I had been on sets with Ben, um, prior to that, I was a first AC, um, on the other Fab Four, which is another short documentary that Ben directed about, um, the first, uh, all female beat group. Mm -hmm. Um, they're from, uh, Liverpool. They're called the Liverbirds. Um, and I think, uh, I think from my time at Breakwater and, um, uh, I guess the most to be very honest like the most interaction that i've i've had with Ben was probably on set the pandemic I think really separated everybody and we were you know I was one of the four people that were still in office spaces at breakwater at the time yeah. um, when the pandemic was around um and I was really working on um a completely different project uh like um like I was saying earlier i, I built a Uh, basically a boutique camera house during the pandemic. Um, and that was very, uh, you know, we were all by ourselves, but I was doing that alone
0: in a sequestered
1: building. Um, so yeah, but I think, um, I think Breakwater has a really great sense of community. Um, uh, and I think that's something that, you know, you really need as filmmakers is fostering a good sense of community. um, Uh, and the other people that worked there, I really like gleaned, um, some great skills from, and it was nice to be around a full team after being a freelancer and really only seeing, uh, one part of production. You get the whole gamut being at a production company, the development shooting, um, and all of the post-production, which is, um, definitely the heavier side in my opinion in documentary, Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, yeah, I had some really great colleagues that I, I learned from, um, Sarah Stewart, who's an excellent archival and develop, uh, producer. And she was the head of development at the time. Um, uh, the producers there, uh, Gabe Godoy, Kaylee Shannon, um, Rachel Greenwald, all these people that like really, um, I had access to all the time. And then obviously, um, Ben, who's the leader there and, um, uh, just like a really great sense of uh, fostered community with the whole company
0: you mentioned one side of the house being heavier than the other in documentary why is that
1: um I I think well I guess like I I don't mean to say I guess time wise is what I'm what I'm referring to I think everybody has a really heavy lift in production I don't want to take away anybody's work but yeah. I do But um, for the particular style of of documentary at Breakwater and at um, other places I've been at, you you generally have a very contained um, shoot, and you have really limited um, uh, uh, crew and um, just like you know tighter parameters usually on production in documentary. Then there's a lot of finding and going with the flow and and intensive listening and then in post you have um all of your post production logging your archival footage and photos um uh going through and and um taking the story out of the interview and the edit and i think um, you know, from the narrative world that I had kind of come from, you do all that stuff in pre-production. And of course yeah. there's also pre-production documentary where you're doing that. But I think, um, in documentary, the nice thing and the hard thing about it is that people are always going to surprise you. Um, they are the authors of their own story and they, um, uh, you know, have insight on things that you're never going to have insight on because it's their life. Um, so I think uh, just being attentive and listening to those things and having the flexibility to change and post makes post and documentary um, uh, a longer process.
0: Thank you for that. That's, um, I think that's going to be very useful to, to someone out there looking to make a documentary for sure. Can you tell us about the trip you took from Chicago to Seattle when you were 18 years old? And then oh, yes. I can choose Seattle.
1: Um, yeah. So uh, I did not think I was going to be a filmmaker when I was going to college. I had this very grand plan of being a psychologist. I really love psychology. My dad is a social worker. Um, uh, I think tagging off of what I just said, like I think people always surprise you, and I think like I just find that fascinating, and um. So I, I, uh, when I was 18, I left Chicago, I moved to um, rural Eastern Washington uh, in the process of getting residency in Washington state, because I really wanted to go to UW and go to and be in their psychology program. Um, They had some psychologists that I really uh, admired um, that I wanted to learn from. Uh, not the least of which is a guy named Anthony Greenwall who does, who does study on implicit bias. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but um, so I, I spent a year in this um, uh, city called the Richland, which is in the tri cities, which is in the South uh, East corner of the state. Um, and I was working full time and got a job full time because I was, had this grand plan of getting residency and I finished school after nine months and gotten an associates to transfer. And I, um, uh, uh, left my job and I had all this free time and I was like, okay, I'm going to volunteer while I'm kind of like waiting for school to start. Yeah. And I happened to get on a, um, independent feature film called Desert Cathedral. Um, And then I completely diverted all of my plans to being a filmmaker.
0: (laughs) Well, I want to dig into why that was, why Desert Cathedral uh, caused such a life change. But I am curious why you chose to drive from Chicago to Seattle. And can you hear some of the hijinks on the way, having made the decision to drive instead of fly?
1: Well, I just, I had, I took all my stuff with me and I needed my car. That was the dumpest, impetus to drive. So I, I had, a I had bought a car at 18 and I had like a, like, you know, two suitcases of things. So I drove out. Um, And uh, yeah, that's, but um, I drove with my dad. I, you know, uh, he helped me get out there. Um, We drove from Chicago. That's what I was going to
0: ask. Like, (laughs) did your parents not do the thing where they drop you off at college?
1: No, well, well, my dad came, which is really sweet of him. And, um, yeah, we drove from Chicago to Gillette, Wyoming, the first day, which was, like, 18 hours. It was, yeah, but, uh, yeah, we just, like, got in the car and got there fast. So, um, yeah, that was was the impetus to get in the car.
0: What did your... Uh, is it well? Is it true that you guys ran out of gas? And and if so, how did your dad let that happen?
1: <laughs> it's not. I guess I use that loosely as a figure of speech because it was like my pit stop on the yeah. way to Seattle. So I ended up in this like really rural town for a year where my aunt had lived. So I had yeah, I had like this very succinct plan of like, okay, I'm going to live here a year, get residency, um, make college a little bit more affordable. Uh, uh, so, but no, I didn't, I didn't actually run out of gas.
0: Okay. Good.
1: Um, sorry. <laughs>
0: so your dad wouldn't do that. He's, he a, he's would, a guy who builds things. That's there's, yeah. no, there's no way he would, he would allow that to, to happen. I am curious about Desert Cathedral though. What was it about it? I mean, cause you, you've been quoted as being someone who before college was, was, you know, um, trying to, you know, kind of attracted to the hellraisers in town. So you always sort of had this interest in, people and why people make the decisions they make. So what was it about being sort of on assignment on the Indie film, desert cathedral that flipped your entire decision-making around?
1: Yeah. I, you know, it's really actually about access. I had never had access to something like that before. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was an, it was a really unlikely place to get access. Um, uh, so I feel really lucky that that happened. Um, but maybe for some context on that, um, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. And I, I um, you know, love the community I'm from, but I don't really feel like the, the arts are not viewed. And I think people can also resonate with this, like the arts are not viewed as a career path. And um, so it never, it just never had occurred to me that that was uh, going to be something that was an option for me. And then when I happened to, I, I found the posting on Craigslist to, for the volunteering for his assistant position. And um, it, you know, that was really my first exposure. When I got on set, I had no idea what a gaffer was, or like a first AC, or like what anybody was really doing outside of like, the director tells the actors what to do, and and like, and then everyone else is kind of just like making things work. Um, uh, so like zero context. So the, and I think what the experience taught me, um, one was just like, there's, there's other options. And I always like, I feel like I've always been deeply creative. Um, and it was finally like, oh, I can uh, have this like study of people that I love and be creative and you know have this community around me all making something and the appeal of that uh was just like totally turned my perspective of like oh this is a possibility this is actually like this is something that people do professionally and now I know these people and can network with these people and then just started to getting on sets from there so it you know that's like yeah so access I just finally had access to um what that a career would look like um as a filmmaker
0: but what about it appealed to you on a personal level was Mm. it something unexpected or
1: honestly i think i think a lot of it was like that particular film had such a great community and i think um you know filmmaking can be really difficult sometimes you get on sets and it's like honestly sometimes it's really hard and it can be awful and And then there's sets, like, where you get on and there's, like, really good, um, energy and people are working really well together. Um, and I was really lucky that it was one of those sets. And I actually, like, I still have, um, really good friends that I know from that experience now that I still talk to. Um, so I think, I think the hook-in was just, like, the sense of community, um, and, um, that people were all communing to make art together, um, and like send a message and that that's really what appealed to me on a personal level
0: you mentioned your background growing up in a suburb of chicago wheaton and your dad's social work and he's also very crafty and you know he builds things and he helps people he's been doing that his whole life and your mom uh neurology background sales background, science background. Um, Some of your siblings are in in healthcare as well. So I guess, A, I'm curious, how did that environment sort of craft your film work, your storytelling? Because I think we're going to talk about some of your films here in a moment and why you made some of the choices you made and, and maybe you know, sharing some of those, um, decisions with, with the audience. But, so I'm curious, like, cause that's not a typical, I'm going to grow up and be a filmmaker family, but the thing ab- about it is, is that because you're in camera, maybe it is.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think like an unlikely, uh, yeah, I, I had no, like I said before, I had no idea that, you know, filmmaking was a Bible career, knew nothing about filmmaking. And yeah, having a, um, having a dad who's a social worker, but also like, he's a very good carpenter. He would always be making things like as a kid. The, um, uh, a lot of people on my dad's side of the family make music on the side. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some paintings in my parents' house that my great, great grandfather had made and they're all over the wall. So there's definitely like artists and um that's around but it was never front and center it's kind of it was very subtle and like to the side and then my mom yeah being uh like very you know super mom and um also like an incredible uh just like like walked up the corporate ladder at her work and like was really successful at it Yep. so i guess in combination i i'm like aggressively compassionate <laughs> and um i'm going to write uh, that <laughs> uh but um i think it makes sense i think i went on a path in in production where um i really wanted to understand everything that makes uh a film set work um and the uh, being a camera assistant seemed like the perfect Uh, seat for me because I was really, well, one, I really wanted to know how cameras worked and how the mechanics of the machine that makes a movie work. work. Um, But also when you're a first AC, like very, like, I guess would say traditionally minded first ACs are always at camera. And so like, I was always at camera when I was a first assistant. And I was not only like doing the job of a first assistant, but I was also listening to conversations between the director and the DP and the, the director and the actors. Like you have a front row seat as an audience member as a first AC. Um,
0: Can I hop in here briefly, Haley, and just mm -hmm. ask you, I think there are people listening who have done this work, but there will also be people listening that aren't exactly sure why well, first, what a, what a first AC does, but the second, why pulling focus needs to be a separate job and why it's so important. Can you just go into the details of that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I was a production assistant for a while, which is kind of like the sets assistant. You're doing general kind of tasks to keep the production moving. Then I briefly was a second AC, which is probably the position that's most Um, commonly known for the slate. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, You see that person doing the slate and set. And then the majority of my um, career in the camera department was a first assistant camera person. And so also called the focus puller. Mm -hmm. And so the job of the focus puller is to um, primarily maintain and run the camera, make sure that it's up at all times and to be listening to the director of photography on like what, what they need or what they want, um, for the camera at any given point, whether it be a lens change or a filter change, or they're going to switch from tripod to handheld and they need the camera configured differently. That's that person's job. And then also to pull focus. Um, so on, uh, on sets when you have, um, Uh, a focus puller it's a completely separate job because it's a highly technical and uh, a incredibly difficult job to keep someone in focus um uh so without getting too technical
0: feel uh, free this is this is the make it podcast where where we where we Um, get into tactics and tools and
1: tips and
0: those kind of things so
1: um so oh man how am i going to explain this uh, so cin- cinema, lenses, uh, uh, outside of your consumer lenses, they, um, have independent aperture mm-hmm. and independent focus rings. And, um, depending on your aperture, you're changing your depth of field. So you're changing how much you see in focus. And that's an aesthetic decision made by, um, the cinematographer. Um, and, uh, so if you have a, uh, low aperture, perhaps something like a T, uh, uh, one, three, really small, uh, uh, percentage of, of what you're looking at in focus. If you have a higher aperture, F11 or T11, you have more space that's in focus. Now the focus puller's job is to keep everything in focus while things are moving. So. If you have a stationary shot, you're probably setting your focus to one distance. If a, if an actor is in place like I am right now, yeah. um, uh, you know you're you're setting and just following any little movements by moving back and forth and changing where the focal plane should be to see my eyes in focus. Yeah. Now that gets a lot more complicated when you start doing things like putting camera on a steady cam, which is a moving uh, person with the camera yeah. shooting at a, you know a T2 um, so getting really razor thin focus and having a longer lens it just compounds the difficulty for keeping things in focus so it's um, an incredibly uh, you have to be incredibly diligent um, and uh, I think it's a particularly hard job because there's measurable error so <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's really well put and and thank you so much for that. There is an awesome picture I, I saw of you operating a steady cam and I don't think I know exactly how tall you are or big you are, but the steady cam yeah. looked as big as you. It was I'm amazing sure it was It was an amazing picture.
1: Yeah holy, I think- holy
0: look at that rig.
1: I think a, I think a, I think that picture might be from a friend who let me borrow it for a day just to try it, but I, I'm not a steady cam operator so that's also a very difficult job but um, yeah, it was fun to wear it.
0: Yeah. I like the person whose job it is to keep the steady cam operator from falling.
1: Oh my gosh, Yeah, it's very yeah the, like that's um, a
0: job it's important but it's, a, it's this weird job like your steady cam guy you're, you're like the trust fall for the steady cam guy or girl yes. girl right like,
1: usually the key grip. But right. yeah, it's also important.
0: <laughs> fun times, fun times. This is great. Um, I, I appreciate you sharing uh, that information and getting a little deep in the in the weeds with me there. Uh, so I know that the overwhelming bulk of your work has been camera and cinematography and running sets, and um, now you're making this transition into producing and directing i'm wondering what drove the decision to sort of shift and transition you know what you're known for and and, and what you want to accomplish in film and what difficulties you're having in that transition if any at all
1: yeah i guess um well I've, i've always known um uh that i wanted to be um on the more creative side of filmmaking i wanted to shoot and direct and then um yeah the emphasis to transition is i feel like my honestly my technical expertise and um the stories i want to tell are kind of are starting to be in alignment um and what i mean by that is uh you know my time as a camera assistant was largely um my practical film school and I was making things but to be honest they were terrible <laughs> and it wasn't what I was setting out to make and I didn't feel proud of it and yeah. um uh I could just tell there was a gap between you know how I was thinking about it and how it was being executed and I feel like that's finally come into alignment um with you know all of this knowledge that I've been on uh indie sets and commercial sets for the past 10 years um, gained a lot of experience from watching people make really great decisions and and seeing the outcome and also bad decisions and seeing the outcome. Like it's all, um, it's all helpful um, in using for my work now. Um, uh, I think the other part uh, of this transition for me is because I'm so technically um, proficient, I can do a lot of things by myself and the financial obstacles of making a film are somewhat mitigated from that. So for example, um, the getaway, the short narrative that I just made, um, I did not involve any crew members outside of myself and the actor until, um, until the finishing cut. I had a co-writer, um, named Ben Lewis, who I made the script with. And then, um, Cap Peterson is the actor and, um, I know him really well and know his strengths really well. And we did rehearsals together. And then the entire film, it was just, um, myself, um, and Cap the actor. Uh, and I, I lit it. Um, I shot it. I did the sound. Um, uh, You know, I did the production design and I also wrote a script that I knew was feasible for me to be able to do something like that.
0: Um, Yeah. And I want to bring the audience up to speed on the on the getaway because it's your latest mm -hmm. uh, film and it does have an interesting premise and some. Interesting artistic choices. So, for example, I think one actor, maybe one location. You wrote, directed, produced. You did. You wore all those hats, which can be mind-numbing. Uh, although I do agree with the the mitigation part of it, uh, you know, financially speaking, uh, as an as a film investor myself. And there is no dialogue in this film. So when you say you wrote it, you're talking all action text, right. And, and all cut and camera work. So, uh, you know, on the page. So why did you make those decisions? Why well, no dialogue?
1: I no dialogue quite simply. Cause I only had one actor. Uh, I'm, you know, that was really the parameters I'm, I was working under and, um, uh, and I also think, like, as someone that came through the camera department and also shoots, I really um, like, from a directing standpoint and from a cinematography something, uh, like, images that have really deep subtext. Okay. Um, I think you can learn so much from an image and you don't need to say anything. Um, and, uh, you know, I definitely have plans of making narrative dialogue shorts and and beyond that uh, feature length Um things where you have multiple characters and that's wonderful. You're really introducing, um, a lot more information for that scene. But for this in particular, I was trying to work under, um, type parameters, to be honest. Um, and then just made a story based on what I had available to me. Um, I, I wanted to make a narrative short. It had been some time, uh, since be- being in the narrative world and I really enjoyed that world and <clears throat> just, felt compelled to make something.
0: Yeah. I think the trailer is really effective as well. This kind of slow pull on Cap's face and, uh, and then we sort of get the title right after that 22nd pull, you know, up to his face crying sort of mm-hmm. distraught, but you don't know why. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it does have a, a compelling uh, trailer that makes you want to say, well, what's going on here? And it really, was framed up well. Uh, you can go see this. It's it's called film. Um, what's the what's the name of the the, the distrib- uh, distribution home for it right now?
1: It's um it's on an on demand festival right now called Flick Fair.
0: Flick um, Fair, that's what it is. Thank you, mm-hmm. Flick Fair. So it's four ninety nine mm-hmm. a month. And the thing I like about this service is it's kind of an ongoing. It, it, it kind of like it wants to present itself in the market as a festival you always you always have tickets to but online Mm -hmm. and uh i i recommend everybody go do it it's five bucks you know Mm -hmm. how does it work does does it actually help you out or does it or is it just a place
1: you know it it, right now it's it's just a place Uh, i mean i'd love for people to see it um but i i really like the idea of this festival because um Uh, You know, if you have a smartphone, if you have access to um, download the app, then you can watch the film for five dollars, which I thought was like a like really reasonable price for a ticket for something that would be in a film festival. And I you know, want as many people to see it as possible. So I felt like it was a good way to show it for the month of July and hopefully in other places in the future.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, with prices the way they are now, I had ramen yesterday, Haley, and it was twenty two dollars.
1: Stop.
0: What the hell is going on? It, these yeah. are noodles.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's tough right now. It's really tough right now.
0: Golly. It, it is, it is, it is wild. Oh, of course, I didn't help matters. I kind of got the hot bun and I got the beer on top of that. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> neither here or there. You also shot a dock called the Pink Belt Mission in uh, India, and in Bangladesh. And I'm curious what the challenges are. From a camera perspective, shooting something in a foreign country, what, like, is there any advice you can give this audience about what to expect or what to to be aware of if you're going to shoot outside the U.S. or in, especially in a place like India and Bangladesh?
1: Yeah. Um, very practically, uh, get your carnet. Um, if you don't know what that is. I don't know what
0: it is. Uh, can you uh, found upon it?
1: Yeah. So, um if you're shooting internationally um and you're traveling with expensive camera equipment there's that part if you've traveled to a different country before that says do you have anything to claim over $10,000 Oh
0: that yeah I know what that is yeah
1: Yeah <laughs> yeah but but there's actually a separate document that you get um outlining every single piece of equipment you have the serial number the cost the country of origin that it was made um Basically saying like, and the, the reason you have it is, um, that when you're traveling to a foreign country, they want to know that you haven't sold anything.
0: Uh. Um,
1: so you need this document, um, and base to, uh, bring it into the country, but also to bring it back. Um, uh, it's called a carnet. Um, and, uh, basically when you get to a uh, port, your airport, uh, a customs officer, uh, can, uh, basically say, I want to see everything on this list. I want to see, um, uh, these select items from this list. And they have a way of like checking to make sure that you have everything you took into a foreign country with you and also brought back with you. It's like um,
0: checking out at Costco.
1: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like checking out at Costco when they do the receipt at the door. Uh-huh. Um, uh, uh, but also, I think um, maybe some other practical advice, bring bring your uh, conversion uh, voltage um, outlet uh, things to charge batteries and things like that.
0: Exactly. Um,
1: uh, and then, you know, when you're shooting in a foreign country, I think it's just good to be open and open to the culture and um, uh, open to the people around you and what you're taking in, especially if, if you haven't been uh, there before or haven't been in a place like that before, um, just being open-minded and, and um, aware of the people around you and, um, you know, you're there as a guest and, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot to learn from going other places and I really love traveling and travel work. I think um, it's always a good experience and learning experience being in a different place and a different culture.
0: Amen to that. And film is taking you all around the world. You really have been to a remarkable number of places in the name of film. So keep fighting the good fight there. What are the two biggest or best, I should say, pieces of advice you've received in your career so far? And who did they come from?
1: Oh, wow. Two. Okay. Um, uh, uh, Definitely one of them was uh, I went to film school at University of Washington, I was in a pilot program there called Cinemedia that um, was run by uh, Andrew Sow. But I took a um, stage directing class um, from a woman named Valerie Newton, who's a um, professor at UW and also a theater director. And one of the things that I remember saying was, if you're a director, it's not your, um, it's not your responsibility to have the best idea. It's to make sure that there is a good idea in the room. Um, which I think I said, you know, says a lot about like, um, how a director is also responsible for like fostering community and being open. Um, uh, it's not a dictatorship, it's a collaborative position and you need to be a good listener. Um, so that's something I really significantly remember from film school. Um, the second best piece of advice or just another piece of advice that I remember Oh, I don't know. Um, I'm going to have to think on that one.
0: Yeah, we'll table it. No big I deal. Think, if it comes back to you, okay. maybe something your parents said to you or someone else said to you or some professor or someone on set said to you. And you can just interrupt me at any point and say, Chris, I remember the other okay, I, of, I of, do of that. advice. I um, Which creatives do you most admire, Haley? And what do they do from a creative or technical standpoint that makes their work stand apart, in your opinion?
1: Oh, wow. Um, Some people that I admire. Um, Well, I would definitely say um, I really admired uh, Lynn Shelton. She was a director um, that was coming up in Seattle at the time that I was there. Um, uh, She unfortunately passed away um, in 2020. Oh,
0: Um,
1: but um, I think she did such an excellent job of uh, fostering community on her sets. Um, uh, the first day that I met her, I had no idea who she was. Um, uh, just I had like showed up a, on a set for a friend of mine to help them for the day, and she... Um, was parking her car and we were both like walking to set and she just came up to me and asked me if I was Haley. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know how you know but she really made a point of, uh, meeting everybody on the crew, making everyone feel valued. And then also on top of that, just being a really incredible director. Um, uh, someone else I also admire, I really love, um, Reed Moreno's work. Mm. Um, she, um, you know, I kind of see a similar path uh, for my career from her, just because she was uh, um, she came up as crew and she's a cinematographer. I think her work work is absolutely stunning, and I think um, uh, you know she's the uh, lead director for *Handmaidens Tale*. Um, and I love the stories that she's telling. I think um, she's just like a really incredible creative. Um, uh, yeah, but those are two people that I really admire and, and, um, uh, Lynn from a very practical level of having met her and worked on her sets and experiencing what it's like to work for a director that really, um, cares about community, but is also deeply creative. Um, and then someone who I haven't met, who I just like very much admire their work and aesthetic and storytelling.
0: What are the biggest creative and business mistakes you see newcomers making?
1: Oh, uh, that's a good question. Um, the biggest mistakes people make. Well, I do see, uh, maybe I can spin this. I see something really positive in people that I think do really well. Um, uh, I've definitely met uh, up with and tried to give advice to people that are coming up in the film industry and looking for their path. And I can say... Um, uh, you know, I did similar thing. I was trying when I was coming up in the film community. and I still feel like I'm coming up in the film community. Um, you know, a lot of times I would meet with people and, you know, try to seek out what would be a um, just seek out advice. And um, it's really, I think it's really tough to give advice in the film community because every because there's no um, set path. Hmm. You can come from a lot of different places. And something I really hated, but now understand when I was meeting with people was people were like, oh, you're going to be, you're going to be okay. And just because you're like here and you're meeting with somebody and you're asking questions and, um, you're trying to find this thing and you're going about it in a way that's very, um, uh, you know, assertive and polite and respectful, but still just trying to push forward Mm -hmm. and, I hated that at the time because there was no solid information that I could really use, but I knew that like the attitude, they saw the attitude that was going to carry me forward. Um, and, um, so I would just like, you know, encourage people to ask questions and to, um, you know, I think it's just like work hard and be nice to people and be respectful and, um, an attitude can really say a lot about someone. Um, so I think it's just like important to keep that in perspective and to um, have a good attitude and, and, and keep pushing forward, even if you don't know the answer to your question.
0: I've found that in film more than any other industry I've been in or, or I'm aware of those sentiments come up. Of course you want to be someone who is well-liked and people like working with no matter what your industry is. But in film, it seems almost doubly important. Like it's like it's front and center, Um, you know, in other industries and other markets, you don't necessarily, it's not necessarily the first thing that comes up. Like, do I want to work with them? It's more like, what is your output? What is your outcome? And in film, it's like, I don't want to work with this girl or I don't want to work with this guy. So we're just not going to do it. And like, I'll find somebody else. Um, it comes up so often. And I, and I, I probably need to dig in deeper to that. And it might, but it might be what you've said a few times in this conversation, which is in film to make a good movie. The first thing that has to happen is community must be fostered. And so if you have a person who is disrupting community, then no good film is possible. And so you've jeopardized the entire financial investment and time investment of the artist. Does that sound feasible, correct to you?
1: Yes. Yeah. I think that sounds very feasible and correct. I think like, um, going back to Lynn Shelton, who was a director that I was talking about who I really admired. I really early, uh, she, um, I worked on one of her sets in 2012 called touchy feely mm-hmm. and it was one of her earlier features. And um, and I didn't know this at the time. I just knew the first day called me to PA on the set. Yeah. And, um, uh, but I was talking to someone later about it, a good friend of mine. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm doing this. You know, I was just chatting. I was like, oh yeah, I'm doing this movie next month. And, um, I'll be on the set. The director's, you know, this woman named Lynn. And, and um, he was like, oh, I was, and I was, I was like, he's like, I think that would be a good job. And I was like, well, what do you know about it? And he's like, he's like, well, Lynn, you know, you can't really get on one of those sets unless you know somebody and, um, uh, and, you know, have been kind of vetted for like your attitude. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they had, she had a thing called a crew And, uh, it was just about like having positive, like-minded people surrounding you, um, maybe not even like-minded, but just like positive people, people that, um, uh, you know, saw value in the work that was happening. Um, uh, because if you have somebody that's like, doesn't want to be there, you know, um, doesn't like what's happening on set, uh, from a standpoint of just being like, grumpy or like yeah, having yeah, yeah. a chip on their shoulder I think I think you cannot like what's happening on a on a set or disagree with something and still be respectful but um uh but just like again it, yeah like what I was saying is that the community was really important to her and having people around that saw value in things and were not afraid to speak up or um you know have fun and spread joy also um yes was really really important um Uh, and I think is really, really important. I think, um, you know, when I'm seeking out people to work with, I don't, you know, I really enjoy, um, working with like as many different minds as possible, but I think there has to be a shared connection on, um, the work is valued and there's a, um, an, an attitude going into the work of, uh, being a community in the work, um, and not necessarily having to be like you don't have to be happy about it all the time, but I think you have to make sure that you respect the people that you're working with.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point. Such a, a, a wonderful and and um, you know salient point. I, I I do think that film is so unique in that specific way. It is it is unlike any other business. If you had one month to teach someone how to be an effective cinematographer that had never seen a camera before, what would be the first three things you'd teach them?
1: Um, I think the first thing I would teach them is probably, um, just giving a blanket, maybe sent, you know, speech, I guess about, um, how to work well with your crew Um, again, going back to this community thing, it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, a a cinematographer is nothing without a great camera crew, great lighting crew, great grip crew. Mm Um, uh, and, uh, just being open to the communication with your keys in each department. Um, uh, next, uh, I'd probably do some basic mechanics of, of getting a camera working. Mm -hmm. Um, just like very practical, um, turning a camera on the basics of, you know, power and accessories and how you're going to be able to watch things. And, um, and then last, but certainly not least the basics of composition, um, aesthetic ch- choices, uh, with exposure and color and, um, framing and focus, um, uh, because if, you know. Without a, a, an aesthetic choice, you know, you're not really saying anything. So, you're um, uh, the basics of how to make those technical um, pieces into artistic choices.
0: Oh, I love that. So, to review step one, learn how to work with crew. Step two, learn the camera mechanics. And step three, something we're going to call going forward, the CCFF, learn composition, color, framing, and focus. Love it. Yeah, the CCFF. We have to learn those things. The
1: CCFF. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. If you were stranded on on an island, uh, well, thank you, by the way. If you were stranded on an island and you had to take one book with you, or if someone was going to be stranded on an island and they had to take one book with them and you had to advise them, which one do they take? what artists do or the body keeps the score.
1: Oh man. Uh, you know what? I'd probably send them with what artists do. Really? Yes. I think, um, I think that that book will expand your, uh, I mean, they're both great, books. I don't know. That's hard. I mean, they're, they're both excellent books. Um, Bessel van der Kolk is a, is a, a wonderful, um, author and, and psychologist. But um, I would say like if you're stranded alone on an island, probably the what artists do, I think that will hopefully lift the thinking a little bit out of your survival mind and um, help you to think outside of the box while you're stranded.
0: While you're stranded. I think that's great. And I'm so happy I stumbled upon this book through you. There's a lot of people who offer sort of the classic sort of trio of books, in my opinion, you know, like you're always going to hear bird by bird and, you know, you're always going to hear daily rituals and things like that. But, but what artists do uh, is a new one to the Pantheon. So pretty excited that uh, I discovered this through you. So thank you for that. Um, Do you know if, you know, the theme of that book, by the way, is like this idea of shifting culture through art. And do you think, or how do you think you want to shift culture through your art? So, as someone who's sort of a a student of this book, someone who's read this book, what are you what are you trying to shift in the world through through your work?
1: Well, I think very very practically with like the things like Queen of Basketball and the Beauty President. I think those are those are just um, um, celebration of people that really deserve a platform to be celebrated and those are voices that um had gone unheard and uh ben the director of queen of basketball whitney um i think both did a great job of directing the film but being a part of those films like finding the story for queen of basketball and then doing the cinematography for the beauty president you know i'm i'm hopeful that i can uh, give these people voice and, and for people to find resonance with the stories. Um, and I think like moving forward for, um, the documentaries that I'm planning on making and for the narrative films that I'm, I'm planning on making, I hope that, um, people find resonance in, um, unheard stories or stories that they may know and are now seeing from a different perspective. Um, uh, but some sort of grounding, um, for those that need to hear it or see it.
0: Being from Chicago, do you plan on making a narrative or documentary on the Highland park shooting?
1: Um, I have not, uh, thought about that, but I don't, I, you know, that's also a, um, yeah, that's, that's crazy. Cause I was, um, I was not in Highland park, uh, but I was in St. Charles, which is about an hour away from Highland park in, um, uh, for this 4th of July. And, um, it's terrible. Um, and there's so many, uh, terrible mass shootings and shootings going on in general. And then on top of that, what I think people don't talk, talk about is like the daily shootings that just happen in the city of Chicago. Um, uh, a
0: lot. Yeah.
1: yeah, It's a lot more than anywhere. Yeah. It's, um, it's a huge problem, and and um, I don't have any uh, I don't have any plans in the work for a Highland Park uh, shooting documentary, but I would definitely not be opposed to it. I think um, uh, gun violence is unfortunately a terrible thing that it, that happens in our country on uh, a daily basis, and um, we should talk about it more.
0: Absolutely, uh, if if value of another person's life were a stock, it would be plummeting right now. And we need to raise yes. the stock back up because every life has potential and is precious. Uh, speaking of precious, this has been a very, very valuable and precious conversation. Haley, you are incredible and and awesome to talk to. I feel like I learned a ton about behind the camera work. So I know the audience is going to feel the same way. Can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media, on the internet and where they can even see some of your work potentially?
1: Yeah. uh, The best place to find me is probably on my Instagram, which is just at Haley, H-A-L-E-Y-L Watson. Um, uh, And then from there I have, you know, a bio link where you can find my website and um, uh, the current link to the getaway, if you'd like to watch it. Um, uh, I also have a Twitter. It's the same at Haley Watson with an underscore at the end. Um, and yeah, I put most of my daily happenings and, um, uh, on there and, and my work as well.
0: Beautiful. Everyone do likewise. Listen to what Haley said. Go follow her right away. She is a star in the making uh, behind and in front of the, uh, well, behind the camera and behind the story, I should say. And so you will not regret Mm -hmm. that follow. We will end on this. Back in 2013, you were hiking and encountered a mother bear and her cubs. And you said you just had to turn around and leave. Can is that all it was? Or did you have to run your ass out of there? What, what actually happened in this tunnel that is, I think about two and a half miles long and there's no light in it, right? Yeah. So this is a terrifying situation, correct?
1: Yes. Um, I, I, well, I'm very impressed that you found this. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I was, I lived in Washington at the time and was biking through a abandoned train tunnel that's now a hiking trail and on the other side of the tunnel there happened to be a mama bear and two babies and my friend behind me yelled for me to stop and i turned around and i looked at him and i was like why are we stopping and then i turned around and there was a mom bear that was looking at me like what are you gonna do and i looked at her like what are you gonna do and then we just slowly got off our bikes and very slowly walked backwards and not ran so not to trigger her in any way um But uh, yeah, it was a quiet moment, thankfully, but definitely a a moment of uh, maybe panic for a second and then just calmly kind of got out of the situation and uh, uh, lived to tell the tale.
0: So wait, you walked your bikes out of there or you left your bikes in the tunnel?
1: No, no, we we had gotten out of the tunnel. I was riding my bike. Mm -hmm. I saw her. She saw me. We both had a moment of like, are you going to do something? And then we just slowly got off our bikes. And then I held my bike and just walked backward as as long as possible while, until we were out of her eye eyeline. That's, um,
0: that's so scary.
1: Yes, yeah, very scary.
0: I was in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which is like the mountains in Tennessee one time. And I was at a convention because that's what I was doing with my life at that time. And I walked up the hill to go back to my chalet, which was, in retrospect, an incredibly foolish thing to do at night. And a bear was right there in front of me and couldn't have been more than 10 feet away. And I would just tell people that when you see a bear in person and they stand up, it's at that moment you realize, I can't beat this bear up. There are a lot of guys who think they can wrestle a bear. They saw Leo DiCaprio in The Revenant, and they think they can. No, you're not going to. No, the bear is going to maul you. It's going to mm-hmm. be quick. It's going to be dirty. And mm-hmm. I um, would tell anybody to go on Twitter and search for bear sees mirror. And it's a video of a bear. <laughs> Someone has set up a mirror in the woods. And a bear walks by and sees its own reflection and just watch what happens next. And then you'll understand why you just kind of do what Haley did, which is like, take a deep breath, lower your blood pressure, walk away quietly and hope that the bear doesn't follow you.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Don't, you know, respect the bears. Keep your distance. Uh, I'm glad that I'm glad that you were okay.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I'm glad you were okay too, Haley. And we'll take that as uh, our advice to leave this conversation. Respect the bear and respect. The set. That's what we've learned today. Haley, you are incredible. I hope that we stay in touch. Matter of fact, I know that we will. Uh, for those listening, like I said, go find Haley on Instagram, social media, the internet, uh, HaleyWatson.com. You can find her many, many places and see her work. And of course, if you have questions for me or uh, anyone who works on the Make It podcast, uh, you can find us at www.banzai.film. Or you can reach out to us on social at underscore Bonsai Creative across the social media uh, social media universe. So, with that, Haley, have a great day, and I appreciate you. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Okay, thank you. Be good. Bye. Bye.
0: Hey, gang. One more thing before you go, I want to talk to you about Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it's completely free. So join today at www.banzai.film It just takes a few seconds, and once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter. It's that simple. Go to www.banzai.film to get indie insights, our bi-weekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives like yourself. And don't worry, we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails. Just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need. And if you ever tire of Indie Insights, we hope not. But if you do, simply unsubscribe. No gimmicks, no games. So, one more time, go to www.banzai.film to get Indie Insights for free. And thank you for listening.